Hi everyone, and welcome to The Five By, your source for rapid fire board game reviews. This episode, we have a great lineup of games for you. Starting with Mason covering the card app-driven game Meteor Fall. We have Luke with Panamax, myself Lydia with Mysterium, Mike with Wonder Woman, and Lara with Arkham Horror LCG. But first, here's Mason with Meteor Fall. Hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Meteor Fall. I love solo games, but I hate upkeep. I have tried and subsequently bailed out on almost a dozen card-driven adventure solo games in the last five years. There's often so much game management to deal with that it becomes a block for me to engage in even playing the actual game. Now, I know a lot of people that really like this about complex solo games. They find the ritual of managing the game turns to be almost as satisfying as playing the game itself. If that's you, then hey, good for you. Grab yourself a copy of the Lord of the Rings card game from Fantasy Flight and indulge in your wildest dreams of going down an order of operations checklist at the end of every turn. The solo games I have kept are, by and large, titles that have narrow decision space and are either self-managing or very low maintenance. One of those is the now likely permanently out-of-print Ottoman Sunset from the now-defunct or more accurately purchased, cannibalized, and discarded Victory Point games. It's a card-driven war game, but every turn you just flip the card over and make a decision based on what the card says. I can wrap my head around that. I can engage in that. I can participate in the strategy of gameplay if all I have to do at the end of every turn is flip over a card. Now, that's an oversimplification of what makes Ottoman Sunset great, but I'm not going to tell you to go buy it because it's incredibly expensive now. Instead, I think you should take a look at a digital game called Meteor Fall from designer Eric Ferraro and artist Evgeny Wittmann at Slothworks Games. It's $3.99 in the Apple and Android store, and I have found it deeply satisfying to play on the tablet. Meteor Fall is, apparently, part of a genre of games called roguelikes, but I don't really know what that means, and I don't really care to look it up either. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that I'm not much of a video games person, and I'm I'm really not a fantasy person, and I'm definitely not a traditional dungeon crawler person. So if the categorization roguelike has some meaning for you, that's wonderful. I don't care enough about the definition or implications to engage in any kind of serious research to enlighten myself. Please don't at me to tell me what that is. For me, the art in Meteor Fall is definitely part of the appeal, as it's a variety of cute and weird but also kind of gross and skanky that I find very appealing. If you're fully bought into the mediocre Frank Frazetta ripoffs that fantasy games drape themselves in, Meteor Fall probably is not for you. The art, theme, and design here would be right at home as a kind of bubblegum sequel to the Klasky Chupo 90s classic Ah Real Monsters, or maybe like if there was a trauma movie version of Hey Arnold. Narratively, Meteor Fall is a pretty standard adventure game. You're a hero, set off to fight baddies and prevent the big baddie from bringing down a meteor and killing everyone you know. The theme is pleasant, and there are plenty of weird little single card side quests that pop up if you play long enough that it does actually feel a little bit narrative. I was, in fact, overjoyed the one time I beat Meteor Fall, so it definitely has an emotional arc, but do not mistake this for an RPG experience. Throughout the game, you get these little one-choice side quests, like, during your travels, you come across a small hamlet, a bear priest greets you and offers to heal your wounds, or you can spend your time training here instead. And it's just a choice between refilling your health or getting some free XP, but it's enough to make the game feel lived in and rich without throwing dense blocks of narrative at you. Meteor Fall is a digital deck builder, and honestly, it's a damn good one. It belongs to a category that I've come to call thin deck builders, or games where you have very few cards and your goal is to refine them and tune yourself a slim and powerful draw pile. I mostly want to talk about Meteor Fall as if it were a tabletop game, even though it's not. It harnesses everything that's good about what a digital implementation of a card game can do, but still feels like and flips over all the switches in my brain that read it as a card game, not a computer game. 
So how's it work? Well, every turn in Meteor Fall gives you a single choice to play or to pass, and in some sense, it draws a little bit from the experience of card-driven war games. You can either play the card or you can discard it and reclaim stamina, which is sort of like action points. Some cards cost stamina to play, other cards are free, and some cards, mostly spells, hold a charge and have to be recharged by other cards in order to use them again. Rounds are mostly short. You have a turn, you play however many cards you're allowed, sort of like a hand size, but you only see one card at a time, and then it's the monster's turn. Each monster has their own deck, just like you. There are cards that allow you to put bad stuff into the monster's deck, but they can do the same thing to you. You'll attack each other's health and stamina, of course, but you also have cards that place permanent or at least some long-term effects on each other. In a tabletop version, you'd set different tokens on your character card, but here the game just pops up little shields or symbols or whatever to track it all for you. You'll build up XP for beating monsters, and as you level up, you get the opportunity to thin your deck or to make the cards you already have more powerful. Both of these cost money, but you'll earn cash by killing monsters and advancing through different places on the map. If you last long enough, you'll get to a predictably stronger boss at the end of each map location, and if you beat them, you get points and money to make your cards better and get more health, blah blah blah, rinse and repeat, pretty standard stuff. There are a lot of different cards in Meteor Fall, but each of the seven selectable characters has their own starting deck. There are cards that I've only ever seen the monsters use, which is kind of interesting, but since the game is digital, it's not like I can look through all the monster cards and know what's coming. There's an element of surprise in a solo digital deck building experience like this, where you're not the one running the game. You don't need to know what the monster cards do, because the game does it for you. You can focus on playing the game instead of running it, which might be why I'm actually getting slightly not totally awful at Meteor Fall. So, who should play Meteor Fall? People who like solo games, people who like dungeon crawlers, people who like roguelikes, whatever that means, people who like deck builders, and people who like cute and gross cartoon monsters. I give Meteor Fall 11 out of 11 nuke vikings come to cleave you in half with their toxic waste dipped battle axes. I'm Mason Weaver, you can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost. Wear a mask, wash your hands, and don't forget to vote. Back in 2015, I was still just feeling around the edges of my nascent love for dice drafting. I'd played Yispahan and found it just okay. I enjoyed my time with Seasons, but considered it more of a card-based engine builder than a dice drafter. I loved Twa from the moment I played it, but its particular brand of dice drafting is, you know, let's call it esoteric. My first true, genuine love for the mechanism came in the form of Grand Austria Hotel. The moment I finished my first game of Grand Austria Hotel, I knew I'd found a mechanism which spoke directly to my soul. Five by listeners can go back through my reviews and find me lavishing praise on some of my favorites like Coimbra, Pulsar 2849, and the aforementioned Grand Austria Hotel, and now it's time for me to do it again with Panamax. Panamax, a heavy Euro published in 2014 by Mesa Board Games and Stronghold Games, is a weird beast. It's easily the heaviest dice drafting game I've played, and it shares more DNA with the 18xx genre than it does with the games I listed above. It's a strange mix of dice drafting vagaries and deterministic pickup and deliver, swirled in a glass with a simplified stock market and the counterintuitive separation of personal and company assets present in many of that train genre's games. And ooh, boy is the theme dry. Only slightly more moist than managing locomotives in the 19th century. Panamax, you see, is a portmanteau of Panama and Maximum, and is the name given to the fattest ships capable of barely squeezing through the world's shipping sphincter. In Panamax, you'll be loading ships with cargo and shoving them through the canal, sometimes literally, in the hopes of seeing your cargo squeeze out the other end before you get slapped with storage fees for boats clogging up the world's most famous shipping artery like a cholesterol deposit. You'll complete shipping contracts by loading cargo on any boat you can, including those of your opponents, move boats through the canal, 
buy stock and try to piggyback on your opponent's successes, and try to leech as much money out of your company into your pockets as possible by the end of the game, because it's your personal wealth that matters in the end, company coffers be damned. All of this is driven by a fantastic dice drafting mechanism. A large pool of dice are rolled at the beginning of each round and sorted by value, arranged on action spaces split into two categories, movement and shipping. On the shipping side of things, dice will let you collect contracts and load cargo. On the movement side, dice grant you movement points for waterways and locks, allowing ships to glide or sometimes cram through the two different types of water spaces in the canal. Virtually nothing in the game is solely yours. Players can load cargo on each other's ships, group ships up to move through locks as a unit, and even push the ships ahead of them through the locks without spending extra movement points. It's this interdependency which drives almost every decision in the game, adding a complex set of considerations to every movement of every ship in the canal. How much money will I earn my opponents by pushing their ships out into the ocean? How can I group ships to get the most efficient movement out of my limited actions? Can I get into the eastern locks first and force my opponents to push me through? Maybe if I shove Christina's ship into the Atlantic Ocean, she'll agree to cram mine through the western lock without me having to spend my precious movement points. As dry and sincerely yawn-worthy as the theme is, I mean, unless you're just absolutely entranced by the idea of Iowa-class battleships whose beam leave a scant six inches of clearance between their hulls and the walls of the locks, It really works well at presenting the mechanisms in the game in an intuitive way and helping to teach, if not the whole game, at least the crux of the load up and deliver foundation. Panamax's biggest problem, though, isn't with its theme or its artwork or its complexity, it's the rulebook. Granted, the game was released in a time of flux for heavy Euro games, when the industry was just starting to realize that heavy game rules could actually be appropriately edited. Even so, the rulebook is nothing short of a catastrophe failing as both a teaching aid and a reference. It took me three plays of the game to finally start to understand it, and only on the fourth did we actually play under the correct rules. But that perseverance is the foundation of my high opinion of Panamax. It is, without a doubt, one of my all-time favorite heavy games. As crunchy as it can seem at times, with a proper teach the game feels legitimately elegant, Combining unique action selection and a punishingly tight economy with one-of-a-kind movement mechanics and rewarding engine building into a game unlike any other on the market. Which isn't all that surprising, considering designer Gil Doré teamed up with heavy game luminaries Nuno Bizarro Santiero and Paolo Soledad, the design team behind Madeira and Nippon. If you can find someone to teach you, or you're the type of masochist who enjoys puzzling out games from impenetrable rulebooks, Panamax is a rewarding nut to crack. Its opacity means it'll never make most lists of industry classics, but it really, really should. My name is Luke, and you can find me customizing my games on BGG and Instagram at PixelArtMeeple, or on my website PixelArtMeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming! Hi everyone, and welcome to Lydia's Educational Game Corner, where I take a moment to showcase my game of the day and give you tips on how you can use it in your classroom or educational space. It's spooky season! So we're going to be covering a game that fits this theme. Today's game of the day is Mysterium by Asmodee Games, designed by Oleksandr Novinsky, Oleg Sanrico, with artists Igor Borlakov, Xavier Collette, Alexander Novinsky, and Oleg Sanrico. Mysterium was previously covered by the wonderful Stephanie on episode 12, so go check it out. Now, Mysterium is a cooperative social deduction board game where one player plays the role of a ghost, while everyone else in the group represents a medium or a psychic. Over seven rounds, in order to solve the mystery of what happened to the ghost, 
The mediums, a.k.a. the group, must work together to piece the story of what happened through a series of visions of illustrated cards that the ghost communicates with. If one or more group members fail to solve the mystery before the seventh round or the seventh hour, the ghost disappears and the mystery is unsolved. But if the majority of the group members have figured out the ghost's vision, then the mystery is solved and you win! Mysterium is a fun, spooky-themed game to bring into your educational space. But before I get some tips for the classroom, there are a couple things to keep in mind before incorporating Mysterium into your educational space. First, timing. How long do you have to play and teach this game? Mysterium is a little bit of a longer game that has an estimated playtime of over 40 minutes according to BoardGameGeek. Due to the longer playtime, I would recommend having a session zero to go over the mechanics and overview of the game, as well as you as a leader to prep beforehand to make the game easy to understand. For example, one way I prep for all my games in the classroom is that I usually develop my own player aid with brief instructions to aid my students. Feel free to use clear video tutorials or whatever tools you think will benefit your group. Next, the theme. Mysterium has a supernatural theme. It is a murder mystery game with supernatural elements such as mediums, the paranormal, with ghosts, and solving the ultimate question, who was the culprit in the crime? On the outside, Mysterium has a lot of spooky elements that would be fun to experience and work together as a group to try to solve. But for this game, really remember to get feedback from the players if this is a game they would be comfortable playing. A lot of players, depending on their beliefs, may not feel comfortable playing a game with supernatural elements as well as a murder mystery theme. If you happen to have a player that feels that way, make sure you reassure them that it is okay and figure out ways on how to include them or work together as a group to find a game that would make all members feel comfortable. You will also have to consider the age and the grade. Due to the mature-like theme with the supernatural, the length of the game, and I would also really consider, like I said, the theme, I would recommend this game for 13 and up. Since it is a social deduction cooperative game where the group works together, I would definitely get my middle schoolers to play. However, getting permission first from the family members to make sure this theme is appropriate for their child to play. And lastly, modifications. Not everyone learns at the same level and rate as others. Keep that in mind when introducing this game to players, and don't be afraid to modify the game to fit your group you're playing with. Mysterium is a little tricky and harder to do with modifications because it is a social deduction and cooperative game. Since everyone is working together to investigate the crime, if one person doesn't feel like they want to participate or they don't feel comfortable, you could have the option of tag teaming with a more comfortable person to do the verbal interaction with other players while your other half can help move markers and help pass out visions. Now, let's talk about how Mysterium can be used in the classroom or in your own educational space. Not only can board games be fun, but they can also provide a great learning experience for all that play. I'm going to give you a few tips on how you can. I always recommend before teaching any games to develop resources to check for understanding before actually playing the game. This could be resources such as a vocabulary list of what words they'll come across, mechanisms of the game, etc. If I taught this game in my public speaking classroom, I would have my kiddos write a demonstration speech teaching the class on how to escape from a haunted house or an informative speech on something spooky or what is a superstition of their choosing. In the theater realm, I would have my kiddos write a scary story and then design lights, sound, whatever they want to accompany it. If you have an art class, your artist could help you create their own Mysterium vision cards. If you have a dance class, have your students create a dance inspired by the title Mysterium. And lastly, in core subjects like history, you can have your students tackle possible ghost sightings or maybe in science, create a potion.
Well, everyone, there are so many things you can do, but so little time. But hopefully these tips will help you begin your journey of bringing the education into your gaming experience. Thank you for tuning in to Lydia's Educational Game Corner. Till next time, happy learning and happy gaming. Being a gaming dad can be a mixed bag of super high highs when your child wants to play a game you bought and are even so excited they want to record a segment for your podcast with you. And then there are the times when it becomes more and more clear that they're kind of looking for new things to do, which is fine. As a parent, and frankly as a person, you've got to respect that everyone has their own interests. But when I saw Wonder Woman Challenge of the Amazons, I was like, maybe this will pique her interest enough for a few games. And talking to Stephanie Straw, that really solidified my hope that this would do it. This would bring her back to the table. So, what is Wonder Woman Challenge of the Amazons? Well, it is, in my opinion, a very unique miniatures, but also abstract cooperative card action selection programming game by Prospero Hall. Okay, that last part isn't my opinion, it's fact. As is the amazing art by Jenny Frisson, but I should come back to that later, and published by Ravensburger. In Wonder Woman, we are playing as Wonder Woman or some other Amazonians on their island, Themyscira, as it is being invaded by some big bad enemy. Out of the box, you get three to choose from, Ares, Circe, and the Cheetah. Each hero gets their own gorgeous minifigure and card with their special ability. A common deck of cards is then shuffled with a couple special relics which give further special abilities when found. Each round the big bat is going to start by doing some things to hurt the island by putting up blockades to slow your movement, correcting Amazons, bringing out their own henchmen, and moving around the board. Each big bat works a bit differently, but each work off a deck of cards. On their turn, you flip one card to see where they go, and then other cards to see what they do for placing their own colored cubes of evil. At the end of the round, Themyscira is going to lose defense points based on how many of and where those little colored cubes are, so you'll need to get rid of them if you can, plus figure out how to get rid of the big bad, which changes depending upon who it is. So, this is a game both of mitigation and building up for big hits. So how do you do that? Well, for their action, each hero is dealt two face-up cards that they can place in one of three action slots that they have. Wait, that doesn't add up? No, it does not. Because while you can discuss your face-up cards, you're also dealt three face-down cards that you're not allowed to look at until you have a plan. This represents the unknown part of planning. So you and your team get to work out a rough plan of what everyone is going to try and do this turn, pick up the rest of your hand, and try and execute that as best as you can. Cards give agility for movement between regions on the island, leadership, which can be used in command regions like barracks to deploy warriors to help you defeat your enemies, wisdom and vigor, which frankly both help you defeat either orange or green cubes, and if you don't have enough of either, you can turn in warriors under your command to make up that difference. If you drew a relic card, congratulations, maybe. You get to decide if you want to place that relic in the location listed on the card. If so, that's it. Keep playing and planning, you just have fewer options. If not, well, then discard it from the game and draw another option card. I like that it's up to you to decide if that relic makes sense to place out now, if that relic will even help you in your current efforts, or if you really just need another card option right now. And just because you place that relic doesn't mean you're the only one that can pick it up. Someone else closer can stop by that location and get it instead. But once someone has a relic, they can't swap it later, so keep that in mind. And frankly, that's about it for gameplay. In my experience with my family, playing Wonder Woman Challenge of the Amazons goes in cycles of oh my gosh, we can't do this, to okay, we're getting this, we've built up a lot of warriors and stuff, let's deliver a crushing blow. And then once that blow is spent, you're quickly back to oh my gosh, we can't do this. And I'm frankly going to file that under things I like about Wonder Woman. Other things I really enjoy are the scalability, both for the number of players and difficulty. This game scales in a few different ways. For player count, each bad guy has two sides depending upon the number of players, which adjusts their starting health, 
but you also adjust the number of cards flipped for things they do on the island that scales up how many things you have to correct each round before the island defenses are hurt. But there's no reason you can't scale that or even the starting defense value as you get better at this game to make it more difficult for yourself. I also like the variability. Ares, Cersei, and Cheetah all felt very different. For instance, with Cersei, you can't even remove the green or orange cubes because they're Amazonian and she's turned into wolves and pigs. Instead, you have to separate them because in theory the wolves eat the pigs. Her scenario went super fast for us and we barely lost. By contrast, the Cheetah was also super difficult to beat but took a very long time to play out. We also love the art in the game. The board and the cards are nice and clean. I don't know about the pithy sayings on the cards, but whatever, they're clear and lovely. I suppose the only thing I didn't like was that in the end, this game is only thematic up to a point. I know, I know, it's a weird criticism coming from Mr. Eurogamer, but in the end, you're playing with some minis pushing around a lot of cubes, and it's, it's a mild criticism. So, was Wonder Woman enough to bring my daughter back to the table? It was, for one game. In the end, it was my son who fell in love with the game, which is great, and frankly, for a large part, I did too. It was much more than I ever expected it would be, and well worth a try. I hope you consider trying it too. And that was Wonder Woman Challenge of the Amazons. Until next time, if you have further questions, you can reach me on Twitter at Mike Risley. For Halloween, the 5 by resurrected a contributor who mysteriously disappeared last year and hasn't been seen since. At least not on the 5 by and barely on Twitter. And that would be me, Laura. To all of our awesome listeners, I wish I could have squeezed in a farewell episode last year. But alas, non-board game life intruded on board game life. A big thank you to the Five By for letting me make a cameo appearance today and for being such a fantastic group of humans throughout my time on the podcast. With Halloween around the corner, I thought I'd drop by to tell you about one of my favorite spooky games, Arkham Horror the Card Game. It's a one to four player cooperative game where you play an investigator trying to get to the bottom of strange happenings. Along the way, you'll explore creepy locations, fight supernatural baddies, and try to thwart their evil plans before you die or go insane. The core set of Arkham Horror the Card Game was designed by Nate French and Matthew Newman, and it was published by Fantasy Flight in 2016. This is a living card game, or LCG for short, which means that new content is released on a regular schedule. It also means that many artists and designers have contributed content over the years. Unfortunately, too many to name here. Also, to make things a little quicker, I'll refer to the game as Arkham LCG for the rest of this review. What makes this game so compelling is that you play through a cohesive narrative, meaning that each scenario has its own plot and story arc. First, you choose an investigator and build a custom deck based on that character's unique set of attributes. Each one plays very differently, and part of the fun is discovering how to leverage their strengths and work around their weaknesses. I mean that literally. You have two weakness cards in your deck. This mechanism works so well. It's clever and thematic and frustrating in the best possible way. I love that it's in the game and hate when it happens to me. So once you're done setting up the scenario, you'll read introductory text that pulls you right into the story and sets the stage for what's to come. You might even have to make a choose-your-own-adventure style decision, not knowing when or how it will come back to haunt you. One thing you can be sure of, your decision will matter, and that's what makes it tense and fun. Then you're off and running, exploring locations and trying to stay alive as you encounter one terrible thing after another. One interesting mechanic this game uses superbly is progressive disclosure, revealing information bit by bit as you progress through the story. For example, the location cards are double-sided, with artwork that draws you in without giving anything away. I mean, you know you're standing outside a tall, creepy door, 
but until you enter, you won't know what's inside. In terms of the story itself, you have a small stack of cards that lets you know what you need to do to get to the next act, but you can only see the top one, so you never know what's coming next. Similarly, the monsters have their own agenda cards, and if you let too many rounds pass, that will advance their agenda card by card, and you don't want that to happen. The tension increases throughout the game as you're forced to spend precious actions battling monsters and other challenges that get in your way, when what you really need to do is move to a new location to collect more clue tokens or rescue someone or locate some ancient relic. So why do I love this game? What Arkham LCG does beautifully is to weave backstory, mechanics, artwork, and card text all together so that as you play the game, you really feel like you're part of the story. You have to solve problems as your character, your strengths, your flaws, your special ability and available resources. All of these provide an immersive experience. It's the seamless blend of story and strategy that deliver a rich board gaming experience I haven't found anywhere else. So if you're drawn to story-driven games, creepy themes, and brutally difficult co-ops, Arkham LCG checks all of those boxes. But it also requires an investment of time and money. You won't get much mileage from the core set. Replayability comes from buying new content, which might not fit your budget or fit your definition of replayability. And it can take a good chunk of time to learn, set up, and play. I'm talking a 30-page reference guide full of tiny text. The person I play with is an experienced board gamer like I am, but we still play this game wrong all the time. There are lots of rules to remember and lots of cards to keep track of on the table. Pro tip number one, if the game starts to feel a bit too easy, there's at least one card or rule you've forgotten about. Pro tip number two, don't rush through the setup instructions. Otherwise, you'll waste a bunch of time mid-game trying to find or fix things. One more thing I should mention. Although women are well represented in the game, which is awesome, that was about it in terms of diverse representation when this first came out. For example, in the core set, all five investigators are white. For a game published in 2016, and especially by a big publisher like Fantasy Flight, that was really disappointing. But I'm glad to say this has improved over time, and I hope it continues to move in that direction. There's a lot more to this game than I can possibly cover in a quick review. And so if you're interested in learning more or just on the fence, check out Fantasy Flight's tutorial on YouTube. And if you end up buying the game, pro tip number three, definitely check out Fantasy Flight's tutorial on YouTube. And that's all I got. I'm Laura Donovan Bannister, and you can find me occasionally on Twitter at Laura Wrote It. Happy Halloween, everyone. You've been listening to The Fi Buy, your bi-weekly source for rapid-fire board game reviews and proud member of the Inside Voices Network. Follow us on Twitter at FiBuyGames. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash FiBuyGames. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And check out our website at FiBuyGames.com. If you like what we do here on the FiBuy and want to support our work, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash FiBuyGames. Thanks for listening.